Good morning. I remember it well. Seventh grade, very first game. We've been practicing for weeks, and in my case, have been dreaming for years about this very moment. It's our first football game. I remember the plays we ran. I remember the passes we completed, both of them. I, I was the quarterback, and I remember on that very first pass attempt, I dropped back. I look, I survey the field, and there's just chaos in front of me, massive chaos. I have no idea what to do. I just throw the ball into the air. My eyes might have even been closed. And somehow, a person with the right colored jersey came down with the ball, completed pass, and we were on our way to a hard-fought, six-to-nothing victory. Yeah, it was sweet. It was a sweet, precious moment. Our spirits were high. We were hopeful about the season. And if I remember right, it was a two-game grueling season that year. And really, it would have been better if it had only been a one-game season that year. The second game, we just got destroyed by this team of semi-professional athletes. One of the, the opponents, I wanted to check his birth certificate because he was a huge man. He had a beard, and we're in seventh grade. They loved to hand him the ball, and we loved to run away from him every time he got it. <laughs> See, I learned early on at a fairly young age what it's like to go from a high point emotionally, with my hope, with my spirits, down to a low point. It actually didn't take much for that moment to happen, for that drop to happen. And you all know what that's like as well. You've all been in those situations. Maybe, in fact, you walked in the door this morning still in that situation. You've been in that situation a while where you can remember what it's like to have a hopeful spirit and disposition. But now, because of circumstances, because of a change of events in your own life, you know what it's like when the floor drops out from underneath you and you don't know where the bottom is. If you're new here this morning, I want to welcome you here. My name is Perry. I'm just part of the staff team here. And we are in a series in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible starts off with Genesis and Exodus is right there, second book of the Bible. And we are in week five of this series. And we've seen a lot of different fascinating and amazing stories throughout the book of Exodus so far. Too many to try to summarize. But what we're getting at this morning is we've seen how God understands and God knows even when we don't think he does. And in this story of Exodus, you have a group of people, God's people, the nation of Israel, who are in bondage, in slavery, in Egypt. And they're crying out to God. And the text says that God heard their cries. He saw their situation. He knew about their plight. And in that kind of awareness that God has, he raises up a man from among them named Moses, which is in and of itself an amazing story that you should go back and read in the first few chapters of Exodus. God raises up this man named Moses, and he tells Moses what he's about to do. He says, I'm going to use you to deliver my people out of bondage, to deliver my people out of slavery. Moses hesitates because he's thinking, God, How in the world are they going to believe me? See, they've been in slavery for 400 years, longer than our nation has been a nation. Their life has consisted, as one person put it, of live, make bricks, die. Live, make bricks, die over and over and over again. They have no hope. 
how are they going to believe? And then Moses also says, how in the world is Pharaoh going to listen? The one holding us in to bondage. Well, we saw last week that amazingly, God's people actually believe that God had visited them. They believe the message that God gave Moses. And it says at the very last verse of chapter 4, verse 31, it says, And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. It's a high point. After centuries of slavery, they believe that God now knows about their situation. They believe now that God actually has heard them and that he, maybe he's about to move. Well, then we read the very next verse, verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Aaron is just Moses' brother. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And then verse 2 says, we got it right here. Thus the Lord says, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. See, Pharaoh, according to Egyptian theology and Egyptian political theory, Pharaoh believed himself to be a god. It's a pantheistic kind of arrangement. So there are many gods, but Pharaoh is among these gods. And Pharaoh says, Moses, I don't know your God. I've never heard of your God. And your God has no authority. Your God has no jurisdiction here in Egypt. And rather than being sympathetic, Pharaoh actually doubles down. And he says this in verse 7. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Pharaoh says, I can't take away the mud, but I can take away the straw. I'm going to require the same thing of you, but you're going to have to find the raw materials. So the plight of the Israelites now has gone from being bad to worse. Maybe even from worse to whatever is after worse. It's a terrible situation, and naturally, you might expect that the Israelites would cry out and complain, that their hope would be dashed, and that their doubts would rise again, and that's exactly what we see. In fact, they blame Moses for these problems, and Moses blames God. Verse 22 of chapter 5, it says this, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. In moments like these, in situations that are full of doubt, we need to be reminded of who God is. We need to be reminded of God's presence. We need to be reminded of God's power. We need to be reminded of God's plan. And that's exactly what we're about to see in chapter 6. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about this name that God had used to reveal himself to Moses. And he says, I am who I am. What we might also say as Lord in all capital letters that you see up here on the screen, you can also pronounce it as Yahweh. 
What its basic essence means is that God is present. That among all of the, the competing claims to God, this is the God who actually is. This God is available. This God is aware. This God is present. In contrast to any other claims to who God might be. And so, what we see here in, in chapter 6, verse 1, the Lord says to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. That word now is something we should not skip over. Some of you have been waiting a long time for this word now from the Lord. Some of you have been crying out about your marriages, about your children, about your grandchildren, about your families, about your jobs. Some of you have been crying out about the situation of your loneliness. You've been crying out and and you're desperate for the Lord to say, now. And right here we see that after 400 years of slavery, God says, now. You shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. They're not going to sneak out. They're not going to have to escape. Pharaoh is actually going to drive them out himself. And then if you skip down to verse 5, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. See, throughout this chapter, there's this language of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the predecessors of who's now in Egypt. There's this, this idea of God's covenant that you see here in this verse. And what this is is a kind of hyperlink back to Genesis 12 when God appears to Abraham. And God has these words for Abraham when he says this, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But right now, none of the families of the earth are being blessed because they are in bondage to Pharaoh. And we are about to see now what it looks like when somebody is dishonoring God's people, the kind of curses that God will bring upon them. Now, if we go up to chapter 7, you see in the first few verses of this chapter, starting in verse 3, God's plan. This isn't the first time we've heard it. We heard it back in chapter 3. But even before that, in Genesis 15, he even says words that are very similar to what we see here. But let's remind ourselves of what that plan is. Here's what Moses is reminded of about what God is about to do. The Lord says this, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So what follows after this is Moses and Aaron then go to Pharaoh to confront him. And Pharaoh has this high bar of saying, perform a miracle if you're going to be in my presence. And so Moses and Aaron do what the Lord had instructed them to do earlier by casting down Aaron's staff onto the ground, which is mysteriously transformed into a serpent. Pharaoh's magicians, the sorcerers, the wise men around him are somehow able to do the same thing. They throw down their staffs, which are also transformed into serpents. Only, 
The, the staff of Aaron swallows their staffs right in front of Pharaoh. You might think that would be enough for him to be a little alarmed by what he's seeing in front of him. But rather than that, we see in verse 13, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So what follows here now is a series of 10 different mighty acts of God, extraordinary deeds, or we might know them more simply as plagues. We have them up here. We can put the chart up here. And you can see a list of the first nine. Now the good news is there are 10 plagues, but this morning we're only going to cover these nine. So you're in for a treat. But you can see this, this wide span of what God is doing from turning the, blood, turning the Nile into blood all the way to the darkness on the ninth plague. This wide scope of what God is going to do to bring his people out of Egypt. Or at least, we hope that might happen along the way. So at the first plague, it says this in verse 14 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the step the staff that turned into a serpent. So Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and they go out to him by the Nile. But here's what Moses and Aaron are supposed to say to Pharaoh. Verse 17, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. So they do this in front of Pharaoh. Everything turns into blood in the Nile, the surface water that happens to be in pots and bowls and people's houses even turns into blood. The Egyptians have to actually dig for clean water underneath the surface of the ground in order to find something they can drink. But here again, the magicians of Egypt in verse 22 did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hard and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. There are no throwaway lines in the Bible, and there are no throwaway phrases in this passage either. As the Lord had said, we, we heard that before. Maybe you caught it. This is the second time we've seen that. Quite simply, as, as we just remove ourselves from the story for just a minute, just let those words soak into you. God knows that all of this is happening before it happens. As the Lord had said, reminds us quite simply that God knows. What difference does it make in your life right now as you sit here on Sunday morning? What difference does it make that God knows? He knows about your loneliness. He knows about how hard the job relocation has been for you and your family. He knows about the marriage where you're struggling. You knew it would be hard when you got married, but now you're actually in the hard. What are you supposed to do? He knows. You know what it's like to go through pain. God knows what it's like in every detail of your situation. And God knows what will happen that hasn't happened yet? God knows. And in contrast to that, Pharaoh 
does not. It says in chapter 8, now we're into the second plague. The Lord says to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Frogs come up from all over, into, from the Nile to everywhere. They're in your kitchen. They're in your bedroom. They're everywhere a frog ought not to be. There's a frog. Oh, there's another frog. Oh, I just stepped on a frog. Oh, a frog just jumped into my mouth. Frogs are everywhere. And again, Pharaoh's magicians are able to replicate the miracle. They do the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. But even though they're able to replicate what happened, they are not able to take away the frogs. For that, Pharaoh has to cry out to, his, to Moses and Aaron. And he says, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses even lets Pharaoh pick the time when the frogs will disappear or die. And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And Moses cries out to the Lord. And the Lord delivers just as Moses prayed. That that very day, the next day, the frogs disappear or die out. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite or relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. We go from there immediately into the third plague. There's no kind of confrontation or conversation between Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh. Rather, this time, God just simply instructs Moses and Aaron to strike the ground with the staff that was in Aaron's hand, and all of the dust and dirt would turn into gnats that would fill all of Egypt. And in this plight, the magicians try to replicate what had been done, but unsuccessfully and in fact, they even go to Pharaoh and they say this, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. These are the first three plagues. And we see that phrase again, as the Lord had said, we're reminded that God knows. But we've seen something else throughout these too that maybe you, maybe you picked up on it. Not only does, the, does God know, but that God wants to make himself known throughout Egypt, throughout Israel, throughout the palace of Pharaoh, among Moses and Aaron, and even to the ends of the earth. God is working all of these mighty deeds to make his name known. That phrase between chapters 5 and 10 is actually repeated eight times. But there's a reference to God making himself known in all the earth. We see it on numerous occasions. If you go to chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, you see that not only is it for that present generation, but it's even for future generations. The text says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And then in verse 2, it says, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. If we can put those plagues, the list of plagues back up on the screen. We start to see some patterns emerging in all of these. There are repeated phrases or ideas that build on each other as we go through, but one of these is that idea of God's desire to make himself known. 
In fact, in chapter 9, during the seventh plague, the plague of hail, you see these words that are spoken by God through Moses to Pharaoh. And this is the message that he says in verse 15 of chapter 9. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. God is reminding Pharaoh, I could have wiped you out by now. I could have taken you out. He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. God's desire 3,000 years ago, as he's working these series of miraculous deeds in Egypt, is so that the world would know, so that the world would exalt his name. This isn't just a localized phenomenon. This is something God has in mind for all of the earth to know his name. And not only in that generation, but in the generations to follow. Other patterns we see too include things like with the magicians, that they are at first able to replicate some of what Moses and Aaron do, but then eventually they're not able to even do it. And they say, this is the finger of God. If you continue to read on in chapter 9, you see that during the sixth plague, when all of these sores break out on people's bodies, it says in verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of these sores, the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And then if you fast forward to chapter 10, you see that the magicians are no longer a part of the picture, but Pharaoh's servants still are. And the text says this in verse 7 of chapter 10, Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man, being Moses, be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Pharaoh has gone well beyond the point of rationality. His whole land, his country is being destroyed and he will not act to relieve it. This is where that phrase, Pharaoh's heart is hard, where that comes into play. We've seen it repeated throughout these different plagues. There are three main phrases that are used time and time again. Pharaoh's heart was hard or became hard. In the ESV, if you're reading out of that translation that's in the Pew Bibles, it says was hardened, which seems to imply that maybe somebody is responsible for it. But really, it's just making a blanket statement about the condition of the person's heart. It just means Pharaoh's heart was hard. Pharaoh's heart became hard. But here we see, at times, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh is actually the one who's responsible for doing this himself. And then there seems to be a contrasting statement down here at the bottom that is problematic. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. What's up with that? Did God take this man's good heart and suddenly twist it to accomplish his purposes? Did God somehow take a heart that was repentant, a heart that wanted to do the right thing but was restricted from being able to do the right thing because God had somehow kept him from being able to do it? 
it's important that we read carefully. It's important that we read closely. And as we do that, among these three different statements, what we see here is that God knows as early as chapter 7 and even earlier than that, that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. It says that, we, we saw it earlier, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But God does not actually harden Pharaoh's heart until the sixth plague. Up until that time, either Pharaoh has hardened his heart or the more general statement, Pharaoh's heart was hard, became hard, is used. So it's not until the sixth plague that God says he will actually, he actually is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And then immediately after that, in the seventh plague, it goes back again. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What we see here then is not that God is taking a heart that is bent on good and turning it towards evil. Rather, God is taking a heart that's bent on evil and he's just giving it even more evil, releasing it to go its own way. One scholar puts it this way. He says this, In brief, the idea of God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is that he utilizes a man's natural proclivity towards evil. He accentuates the process in furtherance of his own historical purposes. Those are big words. Another Old Testament scholar, Dr. Tim Mackey, puts it this way. Maybe it's easier to grasp. He says simply that God has a way of turning evil back on itself. God has a way of taking somebody who is determined to do evil and letting them have that, giving them over to that evil. And in this way, that, that represents what Pharaoh is going through right now, that Pharaoh has been bent on evil this entire time, the man who has enslaved this whole people group. Why? Because he's intimidated by how large they are. This man who has oppressed them and has made their lives even more miserable by taking away straw from them in order to make bricks. That this man's heart is so bent on evil and now God is letting him have his own way. The ironic thing about this is that the man who, according to his own theology, that according to his own political theory, is himself a god, has now become enslaved. Pharaoh is actually enslaved to the very evil that he has surrounded himself with. Pharaoh now no longer even has control over himself. In contrast to that, we have the God who knows and is making himself known. We have the God who, in all of these chapters, in all of these displays of God's power, whether it's from turning the water into blood, into the Nile, into the ninth plague of three days of darkness, where you can't even see your hand in front of your face, we see God's display of his majestic power and his majestic presence in the midst of this doubt-filled situation that the Egyptians find themselves in. This morning, as you came into this place, you brought in your own set of doubts. You brought in your own set of discouraging circumstances. You brought in your own concern over whether things are actually going to turn out okay. Does God even know? 
Let this text remind you that God knows, and not only that he knows, but he is making himself known through all of the wonders and displays that he has done thousands of years ago, but in the wonders and displays that he still wants to do today in your life and in mine. God's power is with us, and it is unmatched. God's presence is with us in everywhere we go. And he knows what tomorrow brings. He is the one we can trust. He is the one that in the face of doubts, we can set our hopes on. Because he is the God who gives us ultimate, lasting hope. And if we move out of this story into the New Testament, we know the ultimate displays of these truths are found in Jesus Christ. We know that God himself stepped down in human flesh and experience the kind of life that we live. He knows what it's like to face this world. He knows what it's like to face the discomfort that we face. He knows what it's like to be human. And he knows what it's like for you. And he has overcome the power, the clutches of evil and darkness so that we can have hope in him so that we can know his deliverance as well. Now we're only in to the first nine of the ten plagues. There's more coming. There's more on its way. If you look at the very end of chapter 10, Pharaoh tells Moses in verse 28, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face... You shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Would you pray with me? Father, as we think about this epic story out of your word, as we think about the wonders that you have performed and the wonders that are still in front of us in the story of Exodus, Lord, we pray that there would still be wonders ahead of us in our life this morning. Lord, you know the brokenness. You know the doubts that we have brought in with us. You know our situation. And Lord, we are desperate for you to act. Lord, give us faith where we lack it. Give us hope in place of our doubts. Lord, may we hear these stories and be reminded of your great actions thousands of years ago. And Lord, may that give us hope in this moment right now to trust you, to believe that you are the God who saves. You are the God who delivers us. You are the God who displays your power and your presence is with us, Lord, so that we can live in those things and experience what it means to experience your victory. Lord, we claim these things now. We pray that you would bring these things, that you would, you would give us hope. And Lord, we pray that as we see these things, that we would glorify your name because it's in your name that we are here, that we gather. It's in your name right now that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.